Let's read together Revelation 20. Almost at the end of Scripture, page 1233. The Bibles that are before you in your pews. Page 1233, Revelation 20. You see the sequence there, the millennium, the thousand years. We're in that now. At the end of that, the last battle, verses 7 through 10, that's our text this morning with God's help. And then the final judgment, 11 through 15. So the millennium now ended by the last battle. And then the final judgment. And then chapter 21, 22, the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 20. This is God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the great, or the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is God's word. May he bless us by verses 7 through 10. That's our focus this morning, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. God versus Gog and Magog. God 
versus Gog and Magog. After the October 7 terrorist attacks on Israel and the declaration of war on Hamas by Israel, the Bible prophecy guys went into overdrive to explain exactly what's happening in God's plan. And one of the things they like to talk about is the battle of Gog and Magog against Israel. The armies of Gog and Magog surrounding the holy city. So a member of our congregation said, could you preach a sermon on Gog and Magog sometime? So with God's help, I want to do that. And pray that it'll be a sermon on the victory we have in Jesus Christ in this final battle of God versus Gog and Magog. We'll be looking at the mystery of Gog, but most of all, we want to look at the victory of God and of his people. We want to see three things. In this battle, Satan's hordes, God's fire, and the city's safety. I won't be announcing them. We'll just, that's the direction of the sermon as we go through the passage, spending a little extra time on the question, who is Gog and Magog? Satan's hordes, God's fire, the city's safety. We are brothers and sisters in the millennium now. Verses one through six, Satan is chained. Movements are greatly restricted so he can't deceive the nations. The flip side of that is so that the great commission, discipling the nations, can go forward. His efforts are limited. The prince of this world has been thrown off his throne and Jesus Christ is seated there. Satan, the prince of this world, is cast out. Jesus is Lord of the nations. Jesus is building his church and kingdom to the ends of the earth. Now, during the millennium, Satan is not passive. He's still very active, trying to hinder the steps of the church. But as we read in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is heading up the hill, and he's afraid to go because there's two lions, one on each side at the top of the hill. He's afraid to go. But evangelist says, don't worry, they're chained. They're chained. They'll frighten you. They'll lunge at you, but they're chained. And so we're in the millennium now. The thousand year reign of Christ. It's a symbolic number. 10 times 10 times 10, completion. Started when Jesus ascended to heaven. We'll continue until the day of Jesus' return or just before. He's not quiet, as we said, Satan's chained. He's not quiet, he's not passive. When Jesus Christ descended in heaven and threw Satan off the throne of the nations, Satan flew into a rage because he had lost the battle to God's son. He is a loser right now. Whatever's happening now, whatever's going to happen before Jesus, he's a loser. That's his spot. Christ inflicted a deadly wound on the cross when he crushed the head of the serpent. And it's a bleeding that leads to his final destruction. But he's mad. 
Revelation 12 says, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He is mad. He's chained, but he's furious. He's lost the war, but he's vicious. And then when the time draws near for Christ to return to destroy the kingdom of darkness, return to purify the earth with fire, to bring heaven and earth or heaven down to earth, as that time gets closer, Satan's anger, and, and Satan loses more and more ground. Satan's anger will intensify against Christ and his church, and at the end, Christ will let him loose. But why? Why would Jesus let him loose? When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Why would Jesus let him loose? The answer is to destroy him more effectively. We have a picture of that in the Old Testament. Remember how Joshua took over the land of Canaan in the north? God sovereignly pushed the nations to gather to fight against Israel so that Joshua didn't have to go out and fight them. They came to him and were destroyed, you might say, efficiently. Listen to this in Joshua 11. And they came out, the Canaanites, with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand on the seashore. It reminds us of the language of Revelation 20. A great horde, in number like the sand on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And they joined their forces to fight against Israel. This was the Lord's doing, to harden their hearts that they should come out against Israel and should receive no mercy but be destroyed. That's why. Let's get them together in one spot. All the enemies of God, Satan's horde. Well, what happened there in the land of Canaan is going to happen at the end of the world on a global scale in something we call the last battle. A furious, vicious Satan will inspire a global effort to deceive the nations. And he will gather a vast army from the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, verse 8, Gog and Magog, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And this vast army will march to surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city of God, Jerusalem. Now, who are Gog and Magog, or what are they? These names actually are borrowed from Ezekiel 38 and 39, and really you should go and read that later. It's a fairly lengthy section. And there in Ezekiel 38, 39, Gog is a prince of a people named Magog. The identity of Gog and Magog are not known. We shouldn't speculate. Their identity is not known. There's no king or nation in history with that name other than one of the sons of Japheth listed in the ancient table of nations in Genesis 10. But no nation, no king. Gog is a prince and Magog a nation of people Far north of Israel, says Ezekiel. Like, extremely far away is the point. Gog is the head honcho of a vast army that he's gathered together from many peoples to fight against Israel at a time when Israel is living in peace and safety. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, God is the one who stirs up Gog to fight against Israel. Why? So that when Gog... And as Magog hordes gather together as a massive army to fight Israel, 
bang, God destroys them with fire and earthquake. And Israel spends seven months burying the bodies and has enough wood from the weapons left behind to burn wood for seven years. It's a picture. Total catastrophe by the hordes of Gog and Magog. And total victory by God for his people. There in Ezekiel we read, in the latter days God says, I will bring you against my land. I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now the battle, the Bible speaks of end times battle three times. Here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then again in Revelation 16 with the battle of Armageddon, the so-called battle of Armageddon, when an army of many nations come against Israel and God miraculously destroys them. Sound familiar? And then again in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, when Gog and Magog come from the four corners of the earth to fight against the camp of God's people and God miraculously destroys them. Now, many dispensationalists believe that the, these are three different battles. In the dispensationalist viewpoint, the millennium isn't yet. The thousand-year reign of Christ as they see it in earthly Jerusalem. We're getting ready for that, they say. It hasn't begun yet. And there are going to be three end-time battles. The first will be Gog and Magog before Christ returns to begin the millennium. And then Armageddon, when he returns, just a little while later, and then the last battle at the end of the millennium. They have three separate battles. But when you compare these battles with each other, and when you consider that Christ is reigning now. The millennium is now. And he must reign, says 1 Corinthians 15, until he has put all things under his feet. The reign is right now. And at the end of it, Jesus will bring our salvation home. And when you compare these three battles, Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Armageddon in Revelation 16 and Gog and Magog again in, in Revelation 20. They all share the same features. It's really one battle talked about three different times. And in each case, after those three battles, there's the new heavens and the new earth. There's the new temple. There's one battle. One last battle at the end of the millennium. So then who are Gog and Magog in this one last battle? St. Augustine said it's the Goths, the people that were invading Rome from the north. In the seventh century, they said, no, it's the Muslim hordes who are trampling the church across North Africa and the Middle East. In the 13th century, many in the church said, no, it's Genghis Khan leading the Mongol hordes across the east. The Reformation, of course, thought it was the Pope. And the last two centuries, many believe it's Russia. Russia. Well, you see, it's from the 
north of Israel, they say, in prophecy. And doesn't the translation say in Ezekiel 37 that Gog is the prince of Rosh? Huh, Rosh, sounds like Russia. Well, two things. The prince of Rosh, Rosh just means chief. He's the chief prince, not the prince of Rosh. Rosh isn't a place. It's a mistranslation. The other thing is that the word Rosh and Russia are two totally different etymologies. They two different word backgrounds. They're not connected. So there's really no basis to that. But you see what's going on in the prophecy guys. Here's what they envision. Russia is going to gather together a vast horde from many nations across the north and the east of Europe. China will likely be included. Gathering together peoples from the Middle East and go and attack earthly Israel and surround the holy city and try to destroy it. But is that what the battle of Gog and Magog are all about? Are we experiencing that on October 7 and following? The beginning of the fulfillment of Bible, some specific Bible prophecy? No. No. Of course we're concerned about the war in the Middle East. In the way we're concerned about any war, terrorists must be defeated. Israel must protect itself against that threat, and we should support that, I believe. The Jews are a people group that need our support and prayers. They need, above all, the gospel. They need conversion. They need a place to live. This is not Bible prophecy in a specific way about Gog and Magog beginning some kind of fulfillment here. Gog and Magog are names without a specific identity because they're symbolic, they're representative of Satan's hordes across the world who always hate the church. And as time gets closer to the end, they'll organize a little bit more. And they'll come after the church and they'll gather together around the world and they'll surround the camp, the beloved city. But what's the camp? And what's the beloved city? Again, dispensationalists say that's Palestine. That's the Middle East. No, no, no. In the New Covenant, the beloved city is the New Jerusalem, is the church. And the New Jerusalem's headquartered now in heaven. Jerusalem, our mother, is above Galatians 4. And her outposts are true churches all over the world. And what's the camp? Look at Revelation 12. It's the whole church of God which is now in her wilderness time. Exiles, pilgrims on the way to the promised land. It's the church around the world. We're the camp. We're the beloved city. We're the new temple of God. Jesus is the temple and all the church connected to him is the temple, one temple with him. 
We're the Israel of God. And when it says that Satan is gathering his hordes to surround the beloved city, the camp, it's to go after the church around the world. It's symbolic. It's the book of Revelation. We need to think covenantally, new covenantally. We're the camp in the wilderness. Christians all over the world, scattered among the nations, churches all over the map, spread to the four corners of the earth. And as time gets closer to the end, and as the gospel spreads, and as the church grows, Satan's fury will grow too. And his efforts at a major global counteroffensive to all nations, or to the gospel increase, actually. Jesus is going to let him loose to do that very thing to deceive people from all nations. He's going to gather together a coalition of false religions and atheists and fake Christians who commit apostasy. Here's a warning for us, brothers and sisters, as time gets closer to the end and the intensity between the church that Christ is building around the world. Yes, indeed, building. And the horde Satan is attempting to gather around himself to destroy the church. If your faith is not real, you're in great danger of the evil one taking over your soul and life so that you become part of his hordes. There is a real danger of apostasy. And if your faith is not real, you'll not be able to stand against his wiles, his tricks. You'll be duped because you're not putting on the full armor of God and you're not pulling, putting on the full armor of God because you're not trusting in Christ. You're not resting in him. Be sure your faith is real. And you're personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and resting in him and giving your life to him. And becoming deep more and more deeply embedded in his holy city, his beloved city, his church. That's, that's what happens. The closer we go to grow to Christ, the closer we get embedded in his body. The two belong together, the head and the body, Christ and his church. But that's what he's doing, Satan. It's already working at it now, but one, at one day the intensity will increase as the millennium comes to an end. And again, how will this army attack these hordes of Satan? How they, will they surround the camp and, and the beloved city of God to attack? Don't think primarily of millions, even billions of uniformed soldiers driving planes and tucks, trucks and uh, tanks and carrying guns. Don't think of that. It's a spiritual battle. S Satan's favorite weapon is the lie. Oh, it will include persecution in places with guns and tanks, yes. But it's primarily a spiritual blessing or spiritual warfare. And Satan uses the lie, he uses false doctrine. That's how he's gathering his hordes. Social media. Other tools at his disposal to dispense his lie, his false doctrines, and to dupe people. Lies like Christ is just a man. The Bible is not infallible. Christianity is dangerous. Each person needs to make up his own truth. It's unhealthy to teach children the truth. You have to let them find their own. Euthanasia is merciful. 
Abortion is a right. Homosexuality is a fulfilling lifestyle. Live your own truth. Follow your feelings. Trade in your spouse for a younger model. Make sure you spend your money on yourself. After all, you worked hard for it and you deserve it. Lies. All kinds of lies. That's his tool. That's the tool of his trade. That's Gog and Magog. Of course, it'll involve nations like, well, all the nations of the earth, U.S., Canada, Russia. But that's not Gog and Magog. It's an international conglomerate of unbelievers inspired by Satan, people who hate each other, but they're united by a common hatred for the gospel, for Christ and for his people. But here's what's lovely about this last battle. Here Satan is throughout history and especially at the end, gathering his hordes. And we don't even read of a a shot being fired. Same with the battle of Armageddon. Same battle but in different words in Revelation 16. There's not even a fight. And God comes down and decimates it. For Satan, it's an unmitigated disaster. He loses abysmally. Look at that in our text. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Here's a note about the church's spiritual warfare. The church doesn't fight back. Never has when it's done the right thing. Not militarily. Not using earthly weapons. We fight back by preaching the gospel and shedding our blood for Christ. That's how the saints fight in the book of Revelation. Give up our lives for Christ. But God fights back. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Christ stepped in. What's that fire that destroys Gog and Magog? It's the fire of the last day when Christ returns in blazing fire with his holy angels. And he burns the wicked and all their ungodly deeds. We read that in 2 Thessalonians 1 when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. People of God, this is the eternal safety and security of the saints of God. For us now, Satan is chained. They can't get you, believer. Well, try the lunge. Keep traveling as a faithful pilgrim. Keep witnessing. 
Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. Death cannot touch those in his hand. He's chained now, and when he's loosed, all Jesus is doing is giving him enough chain to hang himself. That's all that's happening. It's the Lord's doing that Satan gets all his troops together in one army, in one forum, on one platform, so to speak, and then blasts them away with fire and brimstone. And the camp, the beloved city, you'll be brought into glory forever and ever. See, see what will happen. Total judgment. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that day, the saints of God will enter into a devil-free life of joy and gladness. Where as Isaiah says in chapter 11, there'll be nothing to hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There'll be no serpent there. Safe, even now, you're safe. A thousand may fall at your right hand, 10,000 at your side, but it will not come near you for God is with you. I know my sheep, they know me, they follow me, they hear my voice, they'll never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. The Father's greater than all. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. And notice what it says. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. The beast, the false prophet, the devil and his angels. And that word forever and ever should scare you if you're not repenting of your sins, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're not following him, if you're living for yourself. Because eternity is a long, long time. Is that what you want for your life? to hang out with the devil and his angels, the beast and the false prophet being tormented forever and ever? That's told us. So we'll flee from the wrath of God and into the arms of Jesus Christ who will turn away nobody who comes to him. And let those words forever and ever thrill the saints of God. Eternity is a long and blessed time of happiness and glory. As Psalm 125 says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Why would we forsake Jesus Christ amid the afflictions of this world when we know how the story ends? And some will do that. The promise of rejecting Jesus is an easier life now. So I'm going to do that. That way I can keep those friends and keep my job and 
just not have to put out all that effort for following the Lord. And they sacrifice eternal reward for an easier life now. How foolish. Because the end is what matters, because that's what's forever. And you know, the message of the book of Revelation is two words Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And that's the message of the book for you and me and of this section here. Jesus wins. Don't you want to be on his side now because that's what eternity holds for you? Of course we do. Carry a cross now and in eternity you enjoy eternal pleasures at God's right hand. So hold fast to what you have so that no one may take your crown. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that we're bound to Christ by an unbreakable bond through faith and in the Spirit's power. So help us to rest in you and trust you in these times and to continue to fight the good fight of the faith and to spread the gospel and to witness to our neighbors and to stand up for Jesus because not only will more and more come into the camp of Christ, but our security is sure. And we're heading for a forever of glory as the beloved city of God the new Jerusalem, when heaven comes down to earth, oh, what a day that will be. Lord, help us to see that glory and by faith to live in the light of that glory now. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.